If you have been coming for the last few weeks, maybe you don't know my face. Uh, my name is Chris Lewis, and I'm one of the pastors around here, and it's good to see you. I have been off on a summer sabbatical, and uh, that sounds really fancy, like I was in far-flung places. Um, well, we did go to San Diego for a few days, and we went to Nashville for an Acts 29 conference. Some of you know we are part of an Acts 29 church planting network, and it was really awesome to hear what God is doing around the world. And as we give, part of our giving is going to Acts 29, and we're helping plant churches churches in closed countries and terrible places and wonderful places, and, uh, and I praise God that we get to be a part of that. But we had a, we had a great time. I, uh, we have a very old house, so I spent a lot of the time working on projects around the house and discovered that uh, that will never end because um, my house will never run out of projects, apparently. I live in a money pit, and, uh, and so that's going to be the lot of my life. But it was great to have some time off with friends and with family and be with my kids, my wife, and just spend that time together. Together. And I appreciate the board and, and the staff. And I'm really grateful for Stephen and Shane and JD. Didn't they do an awesome job these last several weeks? Um, so grateful for them. And, uh, and their faithfulness in preaching. I want to I do a couple things. We always do these kind of shout-out things, and uh, the Voorhees family, I think Mark and Kim are over at Grand Avenue this morning, but I think this is worth celebrating. Uh, they have actually adopted a couple of kids, but they have decided to take on another foster child, Aiden, and I think we may have a picture, and Aiden uh, has been brought into this family. I don't know. I, I think maybe the intent right now is to reunite him with his, uh, with his birth mother, but what a, this, is, this is a worthy thing, that a family would say, we're going to come alongside, we're going to step into this brokenness, and we're going to be a part of perhaps seeing this family healed. And so uh, congratulations to Mark and Kimberly. That's a really wonderful thing that you're a part of. And I want to introduce some friends of mine, Mark, uh, John and Pam Morton. I'm sorry, will you guys just stand really quickly so you can, you can put names with faces? John and Pam Morton are missionaries uh, to the Sudan, uh, believe it or not. This is a closed country. This is a hard ministry, and, uh, and they're going to be around today. In a couple of weeks, you're going to see a video that sort of highlights their ministry, but you'll find them out at the missions booth out here, and I just wanted you to see them, and I'd love for you to go talk to them about what's going on. We had a chance, Stephen and I and Michelle and, and uh, the Dabranskis, we all sat down with them at lunch yesterday, and it's amazing the things that God is doing. And, and uh, so you can sit down, John, and I, I'm, I'm grateful that they're here. And I, I just pray that you guys will get involved in this. We give to them as a church, but one of the things we want to do in introducing missionaries is, is hopefully quicken your hearts to go, you know what, in addition to what maybe I'm doing for other people or other charities or things like this, I want you to understand this is on the ground stuff where people are making a difference. And maybe you'd go and talk to John and Pam and see how you could support them both in prayer and, uh, and financially. Okay, so I, I'd love love for you to meet them, hear more about their ministry, just some incredible stories that they have to tell about the people that, uh, that they have been impacting through their ministry. They're home on furlough right now, which means they're in this time of, of fundraising and things like that, and they'll hopefully go back in January, God willing. And so uh, welcome, John and Pam. We're really glad to have you and uh, hope that you will, will be able to, to meet them afterwards, okay? All right, well, I'm so excited to be back with you, to open up the Word of God again with you. And so let's grab our Bibles or open our uh, iPhone phones or your, your, your smartphone, and let's go to Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4. And so we've been going through this series, this, this, this freedom of a merciful God series in Jonah to see what's going on. And what you've heard the last several weeks is that Jonah is not merely this Old Testament flannel graph story, right? It's not 
not just this story of a fish and, you know, getting swallowed and all these kind of, you know, interesting facts that come out of this. This is a picture of the gospel. In fact, all of Scripture, right, is pointing to one thing, and that's the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. And so that's what you've been learning, a lot of things you've been learning. So let me just recap really quickly if, you, if you're not familiar with kind of the high points of the Jonah story. So Jonah is a prophet. In fact, you're going to find him mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. But Jonah, this prophet, God comes to him and says, Jonah, I want you to get up and I want you to go to Nineveh, this wicked, this great city, and I want you to cry out against it. Like say bad things about it, basically. I want you to tell them to repent and stop doing what they're doing. And it says that Jonah arose, but he didn't go. He fled and he, he went the opposite way. He went to Tarshish and it says down on the seashore, he got a ship headed for Tarshish and he gets on and God, it says, appoints a storm. You're gonna see God doing all kinds of things because this is a book about God, not about Jonah. And he appoints this storm, this great storm, this tempest whips up on the sea and what's going on? The gods must be angry, the, the sailors think, and they go to Jonah, he's sleeping, what are you doing? Get up, you slumber, what's happening? And Jonah finds out what's going on. And long story short, he says, I tell you what, guys, throw me into the sea, I'm the cause of this, God is angry, and, and the, the sea will, will die down. And it did. And it says, God appointed a fish. It's interesting, there's all, been all this discussion about what kind of fish could do that? Is it a blue whale? Is it a, is it a gray whale? What kind of fish could be? Well, listen, we're talking about God, right? So I don't think we have to try to solve what sort of modern fish can hold a person in their stomach for three days. I think God said, hey, I'm going to make a fish for this very purpose that may never exist again, most likely. And he appoints a fish, it swallows Jonah, holds him in his belly for three days, Jonah cries out to God. God hears his cry, puts him up on the shore, delivers him. And then he says, the word of the Lord came again. Okay, Jonah, get up, arise and go to Nineveh. Call out against that great city. This time Jonah gets up and he goes. This disobedient prophet turns around, goes to Nineveh, and it says he preaches. And his, he, he apparently preaches the shortest sermon in history. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Imagine this, which tells you that God can use even the weakest of sermons to bring people to faith in Christ. And he, he does this, and the entire city has a revival, right? I mean, the, the king steps off his throne. He declares this thing, everybody, clothe yourselves in sackcloth and ashes. Perhaps God will turn from his wrath against us. And it says, this is exactly what God did. And so I want you to pick up, I told you to go to chapter four, but just back up one verse because I want to give you some context of chapter four and you've got to get this for you to understand the rest of it. So it says in verse 10 of chapter three, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Now remember, Jonah, the book of Jonah is doing with a picture, is doing with this, uh, this story. This isn't a fictional story, it's a true story, but it's telling us, it's illustrating for us the gospel. Jonah is a picture from beginning to end of the gospel and the God who saves. In fact, in Jonah chapter 2 verse 9, this great verse says, salvation belongs to the Lord. It's God who saves. And now we begin to see how God, who is this God, and how does God save? 
So he says he looks. And look what happens in verse 10. Did you notice how he says this? He says, when he saw what they did. Repentance, turning, there's there's this great idea in Scripture that you can turn from your sin. It's called repentance, and it literally means to turn around. And it says this is what happened to the people of Nineveh. They turned around. See, some of us, though, believe that what repentance is is just saying things to God, saying things like, please forgive me, saying things like, I'm sorry, saying things like, I shouldn't have done that. No, no, repentance might be, God, forgive me, but now, now it's going to be demonstrated in life. Repentance is the actual physical turning from sin. What, what does it mean to be a Christian? There's a lot of ways we can, I don't mean there's a lot of ways to get to Christ, but there's some, there's some things we can say about that. But let me, let me tell you fundamentally, you know how you become a Christian, biblically speaking? You turn from sin, right? That is that here's sin, here's my rebellion, here's me forgetting God, here's I don't need you, God, I don't want you, God. Frankly, I, I can do my life alone. And realizing that sin, and you let go of that, you let go of that rebellion, you turn, but your hands aren't empty, you grab hold by faith in Jesus Christ. There is a repentance and a faith in Jesus Christ. That's conversion. And that's how you enter into this relationship, but it starts with repentance. It starts with you turning from sin. And this is what's happening, right? Have you you done that? Have you had, can you look and say, there's this decisive moment in my life perhaps, or I can look back and see that I have actually turned. I haven't just said things to God. I've actually turned from my sin and turned to, in faith to Jesus Christ. I'm not saying, do you do it perfectly? I'm not saying, do you never sin again? But can you say, because of Jesus Christ, sin is this thing that no longer has dominion over me because I'm no longer under law, but I'm under grace and I'm turning in faith to Jesus Christ. Because hear me, if you cannot look back and say, I see repentance in my life, like the alternative is terrifying. The alternative is yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In fact, just hold your place there. Go back, go back to Psalm 7. Um, Chris Gannon, this last week, he quoted for us a, a, a part of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, The, Sin in the, Sins in the Hand, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And one of the things Jonathan Edwards does there is he paints this vivid, vivid picture of sinners sort of dangling. And like God, all it's going to take is just God to let go and, and you're done. And here in chapter 7, or Psalm 7, verse 11, listen to this word picture that is painted for us. Verse 12 of of Psalm 7, if a man or woman does not repent, God will wet his sword. Now stop there for a second. We we don't use that language, wet, W-H-E-T. What does that mean? It means to sharpen, right? It's a stone and you, you sharpen it. What's God doing? Is God preparing for battle against people that don't repent? No. No, he's sharpening an executioner's sword. There will be no battle with God. 
There will be no, you know what, I'm going to fight against God. God's going to fight against you, and maybe he will prevail. He will prevail. And the only thing that keeps your head off the executioner's block and God's sword from coming down is his sovereign goodwill to keep you alive right now. But look at this. Look at verse 13. End of verse 12. He has bent and readied his bow. Do, do, do you feel what's happening here? Like, like this is, you see a bow, he bends it, he draws the string. It says, making his arrows fiery shafts. In other words, he's picked up the arrow, he's dipped it in the pitch, he's lit it on fire, he's pulled the bow string back. Can you hear it? This kind of, this straining against the bow. He points it at the sinner's heart. That's where his bow is right now, pointed at the unrepentant sinner's heart. And the string is straining against his fingers. And the only thing that keeps that string from flying out of his hand and that arrow plunging into an unrepentant sinner's heart is what? His sovereign choice to keep you alive right now. See, this is the alternative. This is people who don't respond and yet 40 days, this period of grace, and then it will be overthrown. So what does God do? God sends a preacher. God sends somebody like me, like Jonah, like Stephen, like somebody to stand, maybe a friend. So you hear the gospel. There is a way out. You don't have to know the wrath of God. You can know only his mercy. If you'll respond to this and you'll repent and you'll turn in faith to Jesus Christ, you can be saved. And this is exactly what happens to the Ninevites. They hear disasters coming. They respond. In fact, I think this is implicit. I think I think I know I joked about it being a short sermon. I think what we get there is a, is a summary of the sermon. I mean, this was not a sermon filled with the grace of God. I mean, Jonah was, was preaching wrath, and yet God used that. And implicit, though, God didn't have to send a preacher. Do you understand me? God doesn't have to let you hear that. If God wants to destroy a city, he can destroy a city. And God, yet he, what he does is sends a preacher to Nineveh. Why? Because he wants to save it. Because he wants to bring them to repentance. See, this is the gospel. This is the God who saves. See, somebody has said that God is a God of second chances, which I think is the biggest understatement ever. Like if God is a God, I mean, sometimes I think we say that thinking, well, I I had my one. God, I deserved a one, and so I kind of blew a second. God gave me a second chance, right? I mean, this idea that somehow you, you don't even deserve one chance with God. No one deserves anything before a holy God. We don't. What does God do? Listen, if God is a God of second chances, I'm 50 years old. I used up my second chance about 48 years ago. I'm done. God is a God of 20th and 50th and 1,000th and 10,000th chances. This is the God who saves. This is the God of the gospel. This is the gospel. That God forgives sinners who repent. Now, wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, if I could just stand up, Stephen, somebody could stand up and just go, yet 40 days and God's going to overthrow Glendora or Southern California or Los Angeles, and boom, you know, 20 million people come to faith in Christ. And if that happened, 
think I'd be like, this is unbelievable. I cannot believe this happened. Look at how Jonah responds. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. You know what it literally says? Jonah saw this as an exceedingly great evil. Now that's amazing. That here God has done that. And he, got, he, he looks and says, God, what you have done is evil. Now that seems we shouldn't do that, right? Does everybody get that? You shouldn't, shouldn't do that with God. But I bet you have. And I know I have. I mean, think about this. I like that God calls this sin, but I don't like that. I like heaven. I don't like hell. Now, now, now hear what I'm saying. When I find in myself that my opinion disagrees with God's conclusions, God's assessment. Who's wrong? Me. When God calls something good and I call it evil, when God calls something evil and I call it good, who's wrong? Me. And that's a sin. When I don't find myself lining up with what God, when my affections are not aligned with God like that, that's sinful. And I have to repent of that. Jonah's heart is so out of alignment with God that he looks at this incredible revival and says, that's evil, God. And so now look at what chapter 4, verse 2, verse two and 3 says. And he, and he prayed. And he prayed and said, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better to, for me to live than to die. I'm so angry, God. I'm so upset. Just kill me now. It's unbelievable. But I want you to notice something. Why did, now, now we can go back and go, okay, back in chapter one, what was going on in Jonah's heart that said, I don't want to go to Nineveh? Was it fear? I'm afraid to go. They'll kill me. No. Was it, was it kind of, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm going to be ridiculed. These people have never heard about God. They're going to laugh at me. They're going to, you know, they're going to, I'm going to be the butt of their jokes. Is it that? I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to share my faith. I'm embarrassed to talk to them about God. No. Was it because he didn't understand God? No. In fact, let me say it to you this way. I don't think Jonah ran from God because he didn't understand them. I think he ran from God because he did. Do you see how he says this? He says, God, here's what, this is why I left. That is why I made haste to flee to charges. Why? Why'd you do that, Jonah? What was going on in your heart? Because I knew you'd act this way. God, you are so flipping consistent. You, 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 you are so typical. You so line up with your own character. This is so typical of you, God. It's so like you. Look what you've done. 
that you would forgive this people, that you would actually forgive horrible, wicked, pagan people who persecute your people when they turn from their sin. You would forgive them, God, and I didn't want that to happen. This is why. See, I think, listen, Jonah has a really high view of God. In fact, higher than most of us. And I'd say a really high view of preaching. Like it's actually going to make a difference. Because look what he says. He says, God, I knew that you are gracious. What does that mean? God, you don't, you don't give your favor to people who earn it. You don't give it your favor to people who deserve it. You don't give it to people who you find worthy. That's your grace. That's all it is. It's a gift. That you, God, are gracious. That you are a God who is merciful. What does mercy mean? Right? It's, it's, it's getting what we don't deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve justice. We deserve judgment. The wages of sin, Paul says in Romans, is death. How many of us in this room have sinned? Grand Avenue have sinned. Go ahead and raise your hand. And if you're not, you're a liar and you just sinned. So everyone deserves death. We deserve condemnation. We deserve judgment. We deserve all of these things. And God says, I'll give you mercy. I, I, I will be merciful to you that God being rich in mercy, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. I'm going to be merciful to you. But Jonah says, God, you're gracious, you're merciful. But he also says, God, you're slow. Listen to this. You're slow to anger. That's amazing. Because I'm not. Right? How many of us have a hair trigger on that anger mechanism, right? We're on the highway and somebody co cuts us off and if I had a turret with missiles, I would blow them off the highway, right? I mean, this is not happening to me. You don't do that in my world, right? We get angry with our kids. We get angry at the dog. We get angry at whatever, right? Just, and God is slow to anger. Have you ever thought about this? Read the Old Testament sometime with just this thought in mind. I mean, just read the book of Judges, for example, God does not deal in days or hours or minutes. God deals in decades. God deals in generations. God deals in centuries. God deals in entire lifetimes. And we think, come on, God, get a move on. And he says, no, I am slow to anger because I want to bring about things that would not happen if I just tried to push the ball down the field as fast as I could. Aren't you grateful that God is slow to anger? Abounding, Jonah says, in steadfast love. This is this covenant love of God. And he says, you're not miserly. You abound in this love, God. This is massive love. It's, not, it's, it's, it's overflowing. And where do we see the overflowing love of God? And his slowness to anger and his graciousness and all the things he does that we don't deserve. But we see it most manifest in the cross of Christ that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So Jesus hangs on a tree for your sin and my sin. He's hanging there. There's sin, rebellion, mocking, spitting, cursing, beating around him. And he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
Oh God, you are a God who abounds in this kind of love. And then he says you're relenting from disaster. And I want you to be careful here. Some of your Bibles will say in chapter 3, verse 10, that God repented or relented. What does that mean? When we, we talk like that, we, we talk about somebody relenting from something, it means they had a determined purpose. They, they were absolutely going to do this and then they decided to back away. You have to understand something. The Bible speaks about God. Let me, if you've never heard this word, let me teach you a really quick word. In anthropomorphic terms. Okay, what that means is that it assigns to God so that you and I can understand God is not flesh and blood. God is spirit. But it assigns him things like hands and feet and eyes and it says things about nostrils and all this. We can't look and say that about God, but it's helping us see some things about God from our perspective. So it says he relents from disaster. What does this mean? That God had absolutely determined, I am going to take out Nineveh, but now, okay, yeah, I'm gonna go against my purposes and not do it anymore. No. The Bible says God is not a man that he changes his mind. God has never changed his mind in the sense that we think about it. But God reveals some things and says, yet 40 days and I will overthrow you. And he uses actual means to bring about actual ends. The means being the preaching word of God. The means being the warning to bring about his predetermined ends. Did God know that Nineveh would, would repent? Yes, he knew. That's why he sent Jonah. That's why he sends preachers. That's why guys like me stand up in front of you and talk to you about repentance so that you would hear because God is being merciful to you and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love so that when you believe that, he will turn what is destined for you if you do not repent. God will turn it away. God will give you what you don't deserve. You deserve wrath and you'll get mercy. See, Jonah gets all this. Jonah goes, I knew you were like this, God. I knew you'd act. And this makes me angry. So look what God says in chapter 4, verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, that's what's called a rhetorical question, right? That is an, a, a question that expects a certain answer. It says, what's, what's the answer God expects? Do you, do you do well to be angry? And he expects Jonah to go, no. No, you're right, God. I am totally unjustified in my anger. But maybe if I emphasized a word here, we can hear better what God is saying. Do you, Jonah? Let's say it this way. Of all people, Jonah, you? You're angry with me? Well, let's get this straight, Jonah. The one who, you're a prophet of God. You know the law of God. You know what you're supposed to do. You know, as you'll find out later, your right hand from your left. You know what's good and bad. You know the way I work. And I called you, Jonah, and I said I want you to get up and go to Nineveh, and you willfully rebelled against me. You turned your back on me, and you walked away. You're angry with me. There's, there's two kinds of sin that the Old Testament talks about. There is unintentional sin. I, I didn't know. I didn't know that was sin. I didn't know I transgressed something. And there's a whole lot of others that are called intentional. In fact, in the Hebrew, they called them high-handed sins. And here's what you need to know. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices only were effective for unintentional sins. 
So what did they do about all these intentional sins that no doubt they and we commit all the time? They relied on the mercy of God. Jonah, you turned and you knew better. And what did I do? I brought a fish. I actually created, specially created a fish for you to pick you up, hold you alive, incubate you, put it in its womb, if you will, so that you could be reborn on the shore, so that you could get up and go and do my commandments, so that I could bless you again, Jonah. Look what I did for you. And you're angry. Everything that I have done, that I'm doing for the Ninevites, I have done for you, Jonah, and they don't even know what they're doing. And you're angry with me? Now let me ask you, because I think something that should be happening for most of us in this room is there should be like, I resonate with this somewhere. Like there's part of me like, I love God's mercy for me, but I want God's justice for you. Right? Like, 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 you've been shown mercy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Christ, then God has showered. You have been, you have been given abundant love, steadfast love, just massive amounts of mercy but yet you don't want it for someone else. And I bet you if you think long and hard enough, there's probably a person or a people group or a politician or a political party that you would just love to see God incinerate. Like, God, please don't show them mercy. Give it to me, but not to them an ex-spouse that really hurts you, a former boss, a colleague, maybe a child that's utterly spurned your love and affection for them. Oh God, I want mercy, but I want you to give them justice. I mean, listen, just go back and look at your Facebook posts. And all the ranting that goes on. Give them justice. Judge them. Hurt them. Kill them. Do bad things to people that I don't agree with. Take out that people group, God. Take out the Muslims. They don't deserve to live anymore. Now, why do we do this? See, maybe you've never, that's never come out of your mouth, but why do you feel this? Why do some of us feel this in the recess of our hearts? You know why? Because you don't understand the gospel. Because you don't understand how much mercy God has shown you. Here's what I think. You, if you really go back and look at it, you think my sins, if there are any, are pretty small. <laughs> Their sins are massive. So, of course, God, I deserve it. I'm worthy. Somehow, I've kind of made my way up the ladder. Look, if you weren't here for the, 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 sermon, the series on Galatians, I hope, and if you were, I hope it cured you of that, that there's no making your way up any ladder because there is no ladder. There is no tipping the scales because there is no scale. 
But somehow you think you're better. Somehow you think your sins are small. Somehow you think you deserve it. I'm good, they're bad. So what does that tell me? I don't understand the depth of God's mercy and grace and abounding love and his slowness to anger, his relenting of disaster toward me and what I deserved. Because if I did, I would never do that. In fact, this is a parable. I'm not going to go into it that Jesus tells in Matthew 18. He, there's, a, there's a parable he calls the parable of the unforgiving servant. Some of you remember it. This servant comes to his, his master calls him and says, you owe me a bunch of money, like a lot of money. In fact, if you were to translate into modern day currency, it would be something that you and I, normal people, could not pay off in a hundred lifetimes, literally. In other words, unpayable. And he falls on his face before his master. Please give me more time, which is a joke, and I'll pay it off. Not possible. So you know what the master does? In his great mercy and his slowness to anger and his abounding love, he says, I forgive you all that debt. Can you imagine this? Imagine you went home today and found out that your mortgage was gone, your credit card payments were gone, your, 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 you know, your car payments. There was, you didn't have to pay any more taxes. You were just scot-free. Like what weight would come off your heart? And it says that servant went out of there and he runs into a guy that basically owes him 10 bucks and says, pay up, sucker. And the guy's like, I'm not, I, I don't have it. I can't. Give me more time. No. I'm not going to give you more time. If you don't pay me right now, I'm going to throw you into jail. And he throws the guy in jail. And the first master hears about it and says, what, what, what's that? What do you think? I just forgave you a mountain. And you can't forgive somebody a little clod of dirt. This is what's happening in Jonah. Jonah, look at all the grace and mercy. You are so unforgiving. You don't understand the depth of your own sin, Jonah. So now we're going to move quickly. So look at verse 5. So Jonah goes out of the city and sat east of the city and made a booth for himself there, right? He makes these, puts his stuff over him. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what happens to the city. So now he's going to go out and sulk. He's going to go out and pout and have a pity party for himself. And I'm just hoping, maybe I'm wrong, but God's going to go against his character and he's going to smite this city, you know, hail down, you know, fire and brimstone from the heavens and just wipe this city out. And this is his attitude. Now the Lord, verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant. Here he goes again. And made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. How good is God? Does Jonah deserve this plant? I think any obje you know, objective observer would say, absolutely not. And why does God do it? To give him temporal comfort from the heat of the Middle East sun. He appoints a plant. Again, we don't have to argue. I wonder what kind of plant that was. Is that a, this plant? I, th I think God, it's God. A miraculous plant that grew up in one night and covered him and shaded him and brought him cool air, if you will. He air-conditioned the booth. And then look what happens. But when dawn, it says, uh, verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant 
Verse six, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. Well, of course he was. Things are now going my way. God is showing me undeserved mercy. And I'm so glad you do that, God. I'm so glad you're a merciful God right now. But then look what God does. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. See what happens? God says, okay, Jonah. I mean, you love mercy. How about I give you justice for a moment? How about I take away the plant and now you feel the heat. And how about not only that, I'm going to appoint, I mean, see this again? God appoints a worm. God appoints. Look how sovereign God is. All these little details. We think God works in broad brushes. God sends worms. And he appoints it and it kills this plant. It withers away. And when the sun comes up and it's beating down, I'm going to add to your misery, Jonah. I'm doing this, by the way, Jonah. And I send a scorching east wind. It's called a Sirocco. And it was just sometimes whipped up with sand. Think of the Santa Ana winds here in Southern California with 120 degree heat and filled with sand. Would that be nice? It's like a blowtorch, right? And keep throwing sand behind the blowtorch. And Jonah's like, you, you, you are kidding me. I love it when you're merciful, God. I hate it when you show justice. And look what God says, verse 9. Jonah, do you do well to be angry because of the plant? Jonah says, yes. Angry enough to die, right? You kidding me? There's hot sun. I'm burning. There's sand in my eyes. I'm angry, God. In fact, I'm going to stay angry the rest of my life for what you've done. And, and, and the book leaves us really not knowing what happens. So, so look at verses 10 and 11. And the Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity, pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. He ends on a question. You know, this, is only, this only happens twice in your Old Testament, here in the book of Nahum, where God ends with a question. And we don't know how Jonah would have answered the question. So all we're left with is, how would I answer it? What should be the proper Christian response? Now, I want you to see what God's doing. God's using a kind of actually a very, very well-known Hebrew type of argumentation, and we have actually have our version of it in English, um, and it's, it has a, has a name for those of you who took logic. Uh, it has a name called a fortiori argument. It means you're arguing from the lesser to the greater. You know what this is? Like if, if the lesser is true, then the greater must be true. How many of you remember the Life cereal commercial with Mikey? Come on, right? Hey, Mikey, remember that one? So what's the whole commercial? There's this, there's this like three kids. Mom gives them life cereal. I'm not going to try it. You try it. I'm not going to try it. You try it. Let's get Mikey. He hates everything. Push over to Mikey. Mikey kind of, okay. Ooh, woo, woo, right? And the answer is, he likes it. Hey, Mikey, right? I mean, this is, this is what's happening? If... Mikey, who hates everything, loves this, then surely we will love it, right? That's an a 4 that's a, that's a lesser. What's happening here? Jonah, 
A little plant, really? Did you labor for that plant? No. Did you make it grow? No. Did you cause it to come into being? No. And it was here for a night and gone. And you pity this plant. You want it back. You want it to be saved, if you will. Should I not pity? I, I am the one who made the plant. I'm the one who labored over it. I'm the one who did all this. And Jonah, I also made Nineveh, a place that takes three days to cross over it. I brought in these 120,000 people with their plants, with their cattle, with their livestock. I did all this. And Jonah, I have been so slow to anger with the city of Nineveh so that over these centuries, I have been bringing it to this one point in time, Jonah. Should I not pity them? These people made in my own image. And you are such a racist. And you are so angry. And you want people to get justice and not receive the very same mercy that I've given to you, Jonah. Jonah, you don't have my heart. But here's the question. Do you? Do I? Like, do I have the heart of God? See, 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 this is this is what God's saying. Jonah, you ought to have this heart. This ought to be, you ought to have this great hope that I will forgive sinners who repent. You know what the, one of the lessons of the book of Jonah is? Is that God saves, God moves to redeem a horrific pagan people who are totally undeserving, who know nothing about God, who don't know their right hand from their left hand. That is, they don't know what's right and what's wrong. They think they're doing right. That's what everybody thinks. They don't know Jonah. You do. And the book of Jonah tells us God not only moves to save those rank, horrible, wicked pagans who don't know what they do. In fact, they think they're doing right when they're doing evil. But he also moves to save the self-righteous Pharisee. The one who thinks I deserve it. That's the gospel. That God comes for the sinner that doesn't even know to call out to him. And he comes for the one that thinks he's good enough. And both need to be saved. See, God's the hero of Jonah. God's the God who saves. Salvation comes from this God who then offers up his son for my sin, for your sin, for the religious Pharisee, for the rank pagan, as if you'll turn, if you'll repent, this is a free gift for all. I will be merciful to who I will be merciful to. I will have compassion on whomever I want to show compassion. And God's not asking for your approval. God's simply pointing out and asking, do you have my heart for the nations? Do you have my heart for Sudan? Do you have my heart for your neighbor? Do you have my heart for that person who's wounded you deeply? And if God chose today to reach down and snatch them from hell, would your heart rejoice or be angry?
if God sent a Paul to ISIS, would we be happy? If God sent somebody to your ex-spouse, would you be grateful? Should not I have pity on those who don't know? That's God asking that of you and of me because we have been shown much pity. And here's, here's how the gospel gets lived out, Foothill. That what God calls us to do is say, okay, you've received the gospel. I want you to understand the depth of that. And now in light of that, I want you to extend that to other people. This is how marriages are transformed. This is how families are transformed. This is how cultures are transformed. This is how people, because people understand there's no such thing as being able to not forgive somebody, not show mercy to somebody, because they, I, I have never been hurt more. I have never been wounded more. I have never been sinned against more than I have sinned against a perfect God who's done nothing but been gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster for me. And now because of that, I can do the same for you. That's what God wants for us. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a good God, a gracious God. You are gracious, you are merciful, you are slow to anger, you are abounding in steadfast love. You're relenting from disaster towards those who have called upon your name. And so God, there are many in this room that we have done that. And Lord, I pray the reality of that would once again sink into our hearts and it would then move out of us in mission. That there is nobody, nobody in our lives, nobody in our sight line, nobody on our horizon that we can look at and say they're undeserving and I'm deserving. I pray, God, that would embolden us to share the good news of the gospel. But God, I pray for those maybe in this room today who would say, I don't, I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Like I, I've never repented of my sin, that God, today would be the day where they would hear and they would not just say things to God but they would live things that demonstrate that what they've said is true. They would actually turn because your Holy Spirit is helping them and they would turn from their sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. And by doing so, doing so they, would, they would know from experience that you are a gracious and merciful God, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, relenting from disaster toward them. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for it, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.